Hi, Susie. Hi, Mel. Do you know, thank you very much for agreeing to um, come and share this experience of uh, the podcast that I've been doing for a while, which is Mel Gabby and Friends. And it explores the spiritual, the psychological and the, you know, general experiences that we have in life on a deeper level. And um, we met, didn't we, at the uh, Olympia Mind, Body and Spirit Festival where I heard your talk and he was very generous and gave me a copy of your new book, um, which I was really pleased about. And I don't read that often, uh, really. I'm a, quite an audio person, but there was something that compelled me to sit in the garden and start to have a read your book. And I was really struck by, um, by the sort of wider experiences that I think you share in some ways. But of course what was in the introduction was how you ended up on this journey and thinking about women and midlife and women's experiences. So I'm just going to sort of give a nod to the time when we became uh, aware of your, you know, your presence and what that was about. And it was linked with the infamous Rolf Harris case which all seemed to activate around 2013 and what spiralled from that point. And from that point, your life has taken a huge turn um, and blown up in, in many ways. So I'll let you uh, share that with us because since that point, that's where you really uh, started a different trajectory than maybe you never would have been able to comprehend. So um what was what was happening at that time? So you had the case uh, or the awareness, sorry. For those who don't know, I'm the Australian television makeup artist who helped put Rolf Harris in jail. Uh, in 2014, I was flown out to England to be part of the first and only court case, really, uh, that got him um, uh, named and shamed as a pedophile and got him sentenced to five years and nine months jail, even though he only served three years. But got him, but also we saw the biggest fall from grace that any entertainer in Europe, Australia, New Zealand has ever had. In Australia, as here, there were monuments and statues that were taken down and destroyed. He painted a portrait of the Queen that was taken down. So people have said to me, oh, he didn't serve much jail time. And I, I'm like, yeah, but look what happened to him. I mean, there's no way he could have not been affected by his complete legacy of his lifetime being removed from public view. Um, it was also a really um, big case to be a part of because it changed society as we know it. And um, being in England, I've spoken to several people here um, and I've been part of many interviews, which is great, on uh, all different TV shows like Good Morning Britain and Sky News and Live Crosses to Australia, but... What I've realised here in England is that so many people, women and men, of many ages wanted to be on Rolf's show. But as, the, as kids, they wanted to be on their show. They loved him. Um, they thought he was amazing and why it's affected society because so many of us feel betrayed. Uh, you guys, you loved him and you idolised him and then you found out that he was a faulty human being who preyed on little girls and it made you feel shame that the man that you loved and invited into your lounge rooms to be part of your life and shared with your children when you got mm. older 
was a, a bad man, you know. So the world was in shock, like real shock for a very long time. So he didn't just um, assault uh, other women, me and other women and dozens and dozens of others. He, um, he assaulted the world as a whole by being this individual that we believed his on-stage persona, but he's an actor and that's what people forgot. So it kind of, um, the court case, it really stole uh, the, um, the innocence of people around the world, which was a good thing because many people, mm. I'm a film and television hair and makeup artist. I've worked in TV for 40 years on shows like Home and Away and, and I know Home and Away is really big here and it was really big in Australia and people would run into the actors on the street and call them their character name and talk about life on Home and Away but they're actors and it wasn't real. But people really had a problem uh, with disas with the disassociation. It's like, no, 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 but this is you. And they're like, no, no, actually, this is my name. Um, and actors are really gracious when people call them their character names. And the Rolf Harris, um, the whole thing made people really understand that he was an actor and that in his own time he was not that person at all. He was something that was so far out of the realm that of possibilities of anybody that would think of who he was, you know. Mm. That's why I feel that it was such a big deal, that court case, because it really did change the world. And Operation U-Tree, as it was called here in England, um, is now historical. I've seen it mentioned on, on uh, BBC dramas. I'm like, yeah, I was part of that. But it also took down many, many men uh, because in the film and television industry, there is no H&R department, there is no rules, and there was no rules back in the day where all those men of a certain age were allowed uh, and encouraged to do the things that they did and get away with it because it's all about money, position and power. So Operation Nutri was the first case of its kind that actually listened to survivors of historical sex crimes, you know, women who for, for decades, we women have been told we're lying, we're not encouraged to come forward, you got to suck it up if you get sexually assaulted and why would you go to the police because no one's going to care. No one's going to bother what you have to say because, you know, there's always somebody else that's been done to as well. But that yeah. that changed things a lot. Uh, and it was really, that's what was also groundbreaking is that we were listened to, heard and believed. And it opened the floodgates. It's yeah. very huge because it opened the floodgates around the world. It was the beginning of the Me Too movement before we saw lots of huge stars all over the world uh, get taken down because other brave women came forward as well. Um, so it was um, it was definitely a pivotal pivotal time in our society uh, that really did was the real real beginning of um, huge change for women um, because women being able to be heard is all we've ever wanted, isn't it? We just want to be heard, and that's a basic human need. We all want to be seen, heard, believed, and loved. You know, but um, so 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 often. Victims of sexual assault, they don't come forward because they're not going to believe. Who's going to believe me? What's the point? So then they don't tell anybody and they keep it inside themselves where it festers. They don't get the help that they need. Um, they don't reach their full, full, full potential because they go through life thinking that they don't have a voice. Um, I'm really grateful that um, I came forward. I was allowed to have a voice and I have a big voice. And I've been speaking about it. I, uh, we're all granted um, anonymity 
by the by the judge in the case, which was a really good thing. Because back then, society, we lived, we still lived in what was called the society of disbelief, which is everything yeah. that I told you about. So millions of people got their Susie hate on around the world. None of it affected me um, because they didn't know my name and they couldn't put my description in or anything like that. Uh, and I don't read negative press because what's the point? But we were all liars, all of us that came forward because nobody could possibly, they, like I said, shock. There's no way Rolf Harris did that. We're all just coming forward with these old, with this, all this old stuff that no one can prove because we want his money. Well, his money wasn't on offer, just so you all know. Nobody got offered any money. Uh, we all did it for justice. We all did it. Justice. Yeah. To, to change things. I came forward. I saw a woman, um, an Australian woman who was part of the case. She was assaulted by him uh, when she was 14 with digital penetration when she was a dancer working with him. It completely changed her life. I saw her on a current affair kind of show in Australia uh, in, back in 2013 and it, it blew me away because at the time the press were crucifying her, picking holes in her story. She was a liar. She was this, she was that. And I was just sitting back on my bed watching TV going, well, I know you're not lying because I had a crap day with a dirty old man when I was his makeup artist, you know. There was no digital penetration. I was groped all day. It was still really nasty and he still did it because he could and he was egged on by all the men in this world. He was egged. He wasn't called on his behaviour, put it that way. He was egged on by the director in the studio. He did not do it in private. He did it in public. Um, and I, I never kept it a secret. So I told every man and his dog for decades. People would always say to me as a makeup artist, and I've worked with lots of celebrities, four of our prime ministers, you know, I'm very grateful for my 40-year career. And people are always like, who's the best and the worst person he worked for? And the best will always change because I'm always working with someone new and the worst has always been him. Mm. Uh, so that says something really. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful that I found my voice. I waived my anonymity in 2019 because I'd gone through things in life. I'd done my own healing. I was ready, but more than anything, society was ready to hear me because in 2017, um, the Me Too movement. Yeah across the world and millions of people millions of women around the world put that hashtag on their social media um which showed us the the enormity of sexual assault in the world and men stood back and went oh and that was the beginning of um changing the behavior of men uh you know we, we can't keep operating on the paradigm of the 1950s where men think it's okay to grab a woman on the breast or pat her on the bum or anything like that we don't grab a man on the balls I mean seriously we don't can you imagine you know and we're supposed to stand up for ourselves and go don't do that but that's not how we're raised in my era I'm 61 now in my era we weren't raised like that uh, you know, at the time I was 23, for instance, when Rolf Harris groped me, I couldn't have done anything more than I already did because I was in a working environment. The number one rule is don't upset the talent. He was yeah. huge at the time, mega huge. I just had to grin and bear it. But that's how we were back then. That's how we were. The, the they will be boys and men can't control themselves. <clears throat> It's like, well, actually, they can. They're just being lechy and they're taking advantage of the fact that they know that you're not going to say F off. You know, now the, the mm. rules have changed. If you touch a woman, it's assault. In my country, anyway, it's, it's sexual assault. If you touch a man, if you touch a woman on the bottom in Australia, we can take you to jail. 
I think that's what struck me, though, in terms of listening to the interview that you did and also in your book, is even as a woman, and I've worked in the field of therapy and psychology for over 20 years, that one is the conditioning about what it meant to be a woman and what you said was okay not okay and the environments that I worked in certainly in the 80s where there was a lot of sexism and there was a lot of that what we now know is exploitative behavior but we didn't really know any different and it's conversations I've had with younger women and I don't know what decade that sort of started to change because even when the Me Too campaign um, started there were elements of that that even made me think a bit deeper outside of some of the general experiences that we had that we had to stay silent to or I worked in a very male dominated environment. I was a chef before this career, worked in hotels across the UK in, uh, you know, with 20, 30 other chefs and was exposed to banter and behaviours and all sorts. And on one occasion did actually go to my boss and complain about that. And luckily in that setting, he listened and something was done. But I'd been in other settings where it was either minimised, played down, um, you know, you're making it up, it isn't happening. And so in a way, it was never safe to share your voice or to go to your managers and say anything because it was part of the corporate culture and every culture was different. And certainly your industry, like you said, there wasn't a HR. That was just the way it was. And people were expected to experience that. But it was the conditioning element that really struck me. One is we didn't really have the language to describe some of these experiences that might have been going on. The laws had changed over the years, but we were conditioned as women to be quiet, to be to sublimate, to not have a voice, to not stand up. And if you did, you were loud, you were causing trouble. And, and I think it, in terms of the work that you're doing now with midlife, is it's this generation of women, maybe the 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds, that were part of that culture that have still gone into their later years carrying the... Uh, the shame and all the feelings that they've had about that and haven't been able to hear because they haven't had the courage or the space or somebody to go and talk to and realized that there's a whole load of healing that does that but it's it takes a woman it takes a warrior woman to stand up and realize and uh, look at what's going on and and learn to to have a voice about that and be the trailblazer because that's certainly what you've done in that case on a whole global level not just on a local level and that's what struck me Susie was was with those points that you made about the conditioning that people don't realize that conditioning is 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 huge is you don't necessarily know what's going on and that you can talk about or that it's wrong we haven't got the power to say it's wrong I can't live with that or work here or do that we weren't raised like that so our mothers You know, my mother's like 83 now. So she was, you know, in the 50s where women were supposed to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago where women didn't have the vote. I mean, you know, we, we weren't... Uh, when I when I left high school, um, you, could, you could be in the bank. And the highest yeah. you could get in the bank, and I worked in the bank, and at um, 18 I, I learned what sexism was for the very first time. 
Um, you could only get as far as teller A. Couldn't be an accountant. Couldn't be a bank manager. I got I literally got sexually assaulted working in the bank. Uh, the, the assistant bank manager who was married locked me in the big walk-in safe so he could cop a feel, right? Couldn't mm-hmm. say anything about it. The accountant liked to look at my legs. So I wasn't actually allowed to wear the pants, the trousers, which I love because I'm a tomboy, that were part of the uniform. I got sent home to put the little short dress back on so I could make him his coffee and he could look at my legs. Um, I, I did what I was told, you know. Yeah. I didn't realise um, that I was being... Um, I didn't realise there was anything sexual about it. I was brought up by a Sunday school teacher, you know. I was I was not brought up with anything like this. I wasn't, mm. you know, when 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 we were younger, when I was younger, sex was, uh, the sex lesson was I was given a book called What Every Teenage Girl Should Know. There was one for boys and that's how you found out about sex unless you were ballsy oh, yeah. enough to actually say, hey, mum, what does this mean just to embarrass them? Because you already knew what it meant by then anyway. But we didn't have the communication. Uh, The communication wasn't there. We weren't encouraged to talk about sex or boyfriends. My father said, you you can't go out with men who drive vans. Why? (laughs) He wouldn't actually say because, well, you can have sex in the back. It's just, no, you just can't do that. Yeah, yeah. When I was a very little girl, I remember my grandmother, bless her, she said to me, don't ever wear black, shiny, patent leather shoes because men can look down and see your knickers and don't ever stand near a puddle because men can look down and see your knickers. And, I, and I've never forgotten it, obviously, to this day. And I, oh, for decades I just thought, why would men want to look at my knickers? Yeah. So, so there's there an innocence in that, isn't it? it Okay, so they're gonna look at my knickers. I'm and so you know, I made sure I never stood near a panel. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, yeah, it is like a mirror, isn't it? You can see what's going yeah. on, but I never really understood yeah. why that they were getting sexually turned on by looking at yeah. a, a pair of white so knickers a young girl. Yeah, you know, that yeah. now I would hope that women, I'll like women our age turn around and go, because they're getting off on it, darling. So let's not give them anything that you know, let's not give them any more than they already have. And yeah. we're not, we're not, it's not about us changing men. Men and women, we're always going to be the same. Men are always going to have the hormones. This is sex. This is what it's all about. It's always been like that. It always will be like that. I'm trying to change society uh, and talk about respect and communication and why women don't like being touched without being invited uh, and how, you know, we get rid of the generational mindset that we have been programmed with, that a lot of the time we don't even realise we're programmed yeah. with because it's just so in us. We were raised yeah. with being married, having a man to look after us and having the white picket fence with ours and the two kids or the 2.5 kids and the dog, you know. That's how that was instilled in us, That you know. That's what we were supposed to do. That's, you know, we weren't actually, when I was growing up, I wasn't actually inspired to have a career, a job, until mm. I found a husband, you know. And even when I was um, I was actually working for a bank with the with the biggest guy doing, doing the makeup for the videos, one of the biggest banks, with the head guy, right, uh, and I was making really good money and I wanted to buy an apartment. I wasn't allowed to unless I had a man go guarantor for me because they actually yeah. said, well, you're going to go and have babies. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm in my 20s. Oh, that's just, I don't even have a boyfriend. But it didn't matter if it was uh, my father. It could be any man to go get, any penis would do yeah. to go get for you. Yeah. 
so it's very disempowering, you know, on the glass yeah. ceiling, chopped women off at the heads. You can only go so far. Now women can be astronauts and pilots and truck drivers and dig roads if they want and do anything they want to do, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was really well, I I was really aware of that when I was growing up because um I remember my mom sharing those stories with me that you know she couldn't get a bank loan, she it was really difficult for her to get furniture, she couldn't have her own separate bank account, and being a, a single woman in the 60s and 70s, and I think even into the 80s, because I think that's where we start to see a slight shift. But it's also striking as well, the kind of messages like what you said you receive about really about how you keep yourself safe as a woman, like what your grandmother says is you don't realise the significance of it. And I know that with some of the messages my mum gave, because my mum had experienced sexual and, and physical abuse, and she was really overprotective and really concerned about me being a woman in the world. But we didn't really, because again, I don't think there was a language for it. And when I went into the workplace, I wasn't prepared to kind of some of the experiences that you were exposed to that I think, I wouldn't say every woman, but the Me Too campaign showed that actually a much higher proportion of women had had those experiences and we'd brush them off because they weren't, you know, they weren't assaults or they weren't raped or they weren't seen in that way. And we started to realise these interactions that we can have on a day-to-day basis of how somebody just steps into your space, they've not got the boundaries, they don't ask you if it's okay, and that women were just programmed to go to to be smile or laugh or be a bit girly about it and not be able to stand up and even confront that and so hands were tied and minds were tied because the condition is so powerful and then you know and that really does go back over the decades there's a whole history as to how uh, women have been in the world because you know I've got this book about the amount of women that were left after the amount of men that were killed during the war, you know, and there was 12 women to every one man. And so proportion of women who realised they could break the chains of the bondage of getting married and having children didn't want that. But the social pressure to get married and have children was huge. So some fought to find a man, but there wasn't enough men around. So it was part of the very beginning. And you highlight that in your talk with um that you did on the interview, that it takes generations, sometimes it takes generations to realise, to develop the awareness, then to realise their own experiences and look at that in a different way and then start to make some changes about how we relate to our own children or the messages that we give them that we weren't party to. We're just told, no, don't do that, it's wrong, or um, behave like this because this is, you'll be able to edge your way out of that hugely powerful powerful things that I don't think a proportion of people really understand the depth that this goes to no I don't think they do either we were also programmed with what we wore as well yes you know I was always like don't show a brass strap because it, it's like it might be yeah. so that yeah. the morality and how we dressed mind you you've got to say in Australia some of the young women today they should dress with more morality because they've got everything out there and 
it's kind of like, oh, it's actually, it's, mm. and then they get shitty if a man looks at them, it's like, but you've got these massive boobs and you've got these tiny clothes on and you're saying, look at me and they're looking at you and now you're getting annoyed at them. So you have to, it's kind of gone in Australia, it's gone completely the other way with freedom of expression. It's like, yeah. like you're being a tiny bit too expressive, you know. If you dress a slightly different way, you look so much nicer. But we were raised to dress a certain way, look pretty, look nice, yeah. not talk back to men because um, we don't want to be too aggressive and we don't want to be seen as a bitch. So we do have to just cop it on the chin because mum did and grandma did and, you know, they're all right and they got through it. And then as an old woman, you look back and go, actually, you didn't really because you've got so much baggage that you've never dealt with. Yeah. You had or if we'd been able to sit down and have a conversation, um, it would be all right. I tried to have a conversation with my mother once about stuff. And she just, even though she was a narcissist, she just came back with, oh, well, it happened to her. So she completely just wasn't interested. It was just, yeah, it was just how it was. And we weren't yeah. raised to think it was sexual assault. Mm. We believe sexual assault was rape. Um, I'm just going to put it out there. Rape has been written off now. It's called sexual assault. We don't use the word rape anymore. Men have changed that. Uh, you know, we don't use the word rape. I think women should bring back the word rape because it's our word and it's very descriptive and we know exactly what it means. There's sexual means, assault yeah. and rape. But it's all under a nice, tidy umbrella now. It's nice and tidy so that, you know, women can come in and they have to describe everything that went on to them. And then somebody, and it's usually men, um, will determine where it sits underneath that umbrella mm-hmm. of severity you know, and whether, we, whether we're just kind of, you know, well, we'll give you a counsellor, darling, and it will be fine, but, you know, you're okay, yeah. um, you know, and there wasn't penetration and it doesn't matter that you're going to suffer trauma for years, but, you know, it'll be okay. Uh, so we, it does. It takes a long time uh, for us to realise how programmed we are, for us to, and when we realise that programming, we then pass on our knowledge to the younger generations to help them. Um, mm. Uh, and uh, that's the only way we're going to actually change things is by talking like this and yeah. keep the conversation going all yeah. the time, constantly, so that change will happen. And one of the reasons that I highlighted that is there's a hell of a lot of women, and I know, and I'm going to flag this now, I know there's a lot of men out there that have also experienced abuse, assaults, uh, domestic abuse however most of my work over the 20 years and I am a woman most of my work 95% of the work I've done has been with women and so I know more and I know about the stats as well that come through because one of the things you also highlight is it is still sort of a male-dominated world when it comes to thinking about what funds we put into what aspects of society and I certainly know through the work that I've done in the last two years where we set up a well-being program Uh, that was funded a joint initiative in one of the local authorities and police local safeguarding uh, aimed at women who'd experienced domestic abuse uh, to help them move on in their lives is that when I actually looked at the women's aid report that was released in 2022 is the numbers of women that were reaching out to get help and the numbers of women that could be helped to even be rehoused the money that was put into that, even though they have all the data, uh, is about a quarter of what the need is. And we saw during uh, lockdown and after lockdown is that women were calling up 
and there was nowhere for them to go. And they were there with no money and nowhere to go in those circumstances. And that is still huge and prevalent across the whole of the UK. The report that Women's Aid did highlights all the numbers of the people who've gone through services. There may be refuges there. If you're lucky, you might get a place. They charge an arm and a leg. So if you're working, women have had to give up work because they can't afford to pay the price of living in a refuge. They'll only house one child, not two. So these uh, systems are still uh, dominating the perpetuation to some degree of the narrative and the rationale that we, 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 and women do have a go at other women. Why don't you leave? It was really bad. All this happened to you. That Why have you not gone to the police? Why has this not happened? And they don't realise how many barriers and uh, obstacles are in the way to you actually making a change in your life and moving forward. So talking about it is one element, but the reality is as well, the practicalities, isn't that that when you want to change your life or when you want to do something different, one, you've got to get past your own head and your conditioning. Two is you've got to be able to realise that a proportion of this is what you may have blamed yourself for when I, because women tend to blame themselves for their own experiences because that's what society also foisters on you. And then you've got to then try and find the psychological, spiritual and emotional strength to do something about it. And that's what struck me about you because all along, and I think you said that in your previous interview, you've got this amazing fortitude and, and I would say sort of that spiritual warrior that has come through, that has led the way with this, uh, with this case and supported other women to do so. But it is still, even if laws have changed or we language things slightly differently, there's so many layers to this as to how people how people come to terms with their own experiences, whether or not they've sought help, because seeking help is one part of it, isn't it? And then how they come to terms with that, how they do the healing, how they then start to navigate a life that has been based on such thwarted conditioning. And seeking help, you have to, um, so I've, I've been, I've just come out of a 30-year marriage. Uh, well, you know, a couple of years ago, really, I came out of it spiritually. I, I divorced my husband. It happened on paper March 2021. Because of debt and COVID, we still had to live in the same house until December last year. But I'd really moved away from him in my head and my heart many years ago. I'd been really pulling away from him for a while. All the conditioning that we have, we're also conditioned to how we behave in a marriage and, and in a partnership. And as women, we're really, I know I was doing this, my ex had real anger management problems. He also had, um, uh, a, we all tend to go through life taking substances to make ourselves feel better whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever, to get through our days. Men and women do the same thing. Yeah. When you use too much of a substance, it can mess up your brain. Oh. So my ex got very, very angry and very disappointed in himself and he took that out on me. And as his wife, I believed it was my duty and the only thing I could do for him was to stand there and let him verbally abuse me. And he would really go for it um, because when he'd finished, I could absorb it all. I felt that I was strong. I could take it all on. Um, 
And then he'd go and he'd sleep and he'd yeah. feel and we were both self-employed and I really felt for a long time, 10 years this went on, that that was my job as his wife, you know. we we And that's part of the programming mm. uh, that we have, that it's our responsibility to nurture. Uh, and then, you know, and I really felt, I thought, you know what, if I was a psychologist, I'd be getting paid $150 an hour for this, getting paid nothing. And um, after a few years of it, it started to take its toll on me. I got full of his bile, of his emotional and spiritual bile. I got really full um, and I got really over it and I begged him to choose me and our son over the things that he was um, helping himself daily with that were changing his personality. But he didn't choose us. He chose his other wife. Uh, the substance. Um, uh, even when I was um, in the Rolf Harris court case, um, he would vacillate from being supportive when our son was on the other end of the phone to abusing the crap out of me. And it was then the day after the court case, um, which, you know, we now know changed the world and all that sort of stuff. And I was, it was, it was a really big deal, right, being part of a court case yeah. that was in the world. Yeah. I won't say it wasn't. It was huge. I had a lot weighing on me, you know. Um, and it was the day after the court case. Um, and he's I've just been in the pool. Uh, I was going through menopause. My hips were killing me. My body ached, you know. Um, I was sweating. And I just I was lucky to be in this hotel that had a spa with these jets. And every morning I'd go down and I'd have the jets pummeling into my thighs. And my hips, and I was rubbing cream into my, you know, just to walk without pain. I mean, there's stuff that people don't realise when you go through menopause that your body goes through. So I was in pain and I just kind of relieved all this and I'd just come out, just had a shower and he calls and he literally um, ripped me a new one over the phone and I would never hang up. I would always let him keep going. And this particular time was the first time that I actually passed out and I found myself on the floor just completely breaking out in a cold sweat whilst he still spewed all his hatred and bile on me um, and I still let him do it until he was finished and I was really having a full-on physical reaction to it. And that was the beginning of realisation to me that I was full uh, and that I um, I couldn't really do this anymore because it was physical now. It's like I've given you so many years and now um, I can't really take it anymore because the more we give to them like that, the more they give back to us, the more they expect us to take more and more levels of anger, the more blame put on us for their own shortcomings and their own feelings of inadequacy in their own lives, you know, and he was giving me everything. Um, and I didn't deserve any of it, you know, um, and uh, it was the beginning, 2014 was the beginning of me changing my life, um, finding, uh, finding, finding, my, finding my spiritual warrior, as you've mentioned, which I love, um, and really digging deep and thinking I've got to, I've, things have got to change. When I was in England, it was actually a long way away from Australia. I remember standing outside the hotel room and I had this wave come over me of freedom. Wow. I had so much distance from him and 
I actually felt free for the first time in decades wow. and it was an amazing feeling. Uh, and so I was, I was really open to everything that was happening to me in England. England was really healing for me in 2014. Um, and I really um, started to figure out who I was and what I wanted in life and what I was willing to put up with or not put up with, but be really more introspective with the effect that living with a toxic low vibrating negative male was doing to my feminine energy if you like uh so uh, i was really lucky i had a girlfriend with me which was great um having a best friend to give you cuddles when mm. crap is happening is really good we cannot do this life alone ladies and gents mm. but specifically can't do it alone don't think you can do it alone you need your girlfriends with you those that you can trust because it's times when we need to have that cuddle and we need to tell each other, it's going to be okay. I'm here for you. Um, and that's what tribing is. You've got to have, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a small circle. We don't need a big circle. They have to be trusted. But you have a small circle of like-minded women um, who see you, hear you, feel you, know you and love you for whatever you do. Yeah. Who will give you that big cuddle that you can sob on um, and they'll tell you everything is going to be all right so I was very lucky to have my girlfriend with me in those you know after those moments who you know she's going oh, just an asshole let's get on with it you know let's go and have some fun um, and I but I did I started to find myself then a lot of the time we can we can coaches are great mm. mentors are great but we have to dig in to our own inner fortitude. And I know you've heard me talk about that. We have to dig into ourselves. We have to find ourselves because we, we're the only ones that can heal ourselves. We're the only ones that can get ourselves out of situations. And when you're in a sort of a situation in life that's toxic like that, you have to work on yourself first. Mm -hmm. I realised that, um, you know, I married, I thought I married my soulmate. And I look back and I think there was many, many good times but it was all kind of fraught with him being um, a bit fragile at times psychologically. And it just kind of, over the years, it just got more and more and more. Yeah, um, it, it did. And uh, so the things that I thought we were going to get out of, you know, holidays and stuff like that, didn't have anything like that. For 10 years, we didn't have people coming over. No one would come to my wow. house. He wouldn't leave the house unless either me or when my son was older, he drove him. Um, he worked from home. He never left. He was always there. Wow. The energy in the house was so toxic that I remember one day one of my girlfriends come over. She stood at the front door and she just said, oh, I'm really sorry, Susie, I can't come in. And I went, wow. that's okay, mate, I understand. I used to have to go behind him to fix relationships that he'd broken with the dentist, you know. He'd go to the dentist and tell him how awful me and our son were and how, you know, basically he became paranoid and full of blame. Um, however, at that time it was pretty obvious that there was something seriously wrong with him, you know, that he was on something that he wasn't, you know, kind of behaving in a normal way. But I, I was, I was picking up the pieces like a good dutiful wife and fixing relationships as it went on. And then I got to the stage and I thought, nah, I'm done, you know, do it yourself. What brought that on? What was it that activated I'm done? I just. The I'm done came when he slammed the door in my face. Right. Because that was physical. 
I was always, I was, I was already emotionally done. Our son was, I tried to divorce him three times. Didn't really work. We had no money. So I couldn't leave because there was no, like, there was lack of funds. Um, COVID, you know, I lost two careers in one week. Oof. Wow. My yeah. career makeup artist had happened here, hair and makeup. We, we were gone. You couldn't go and have your hair done. Couldn't go and have your yeah. face done. Film and television industry just shut down. I was a motivational speaker. They took my faces and stages away in one week. Wow. I became a carer after that. I've seen that so many times in my life and changed, you know, who I am and what I've been, well, not who I am, but what I've been doing. Um, uh, I have no problem with doing that. But that was, and that stayed gone for years because they didn't bring that back, you know. Um, uh, my my ex could have done a lot more. He was in the transport industry. He could have really made that really work, but he didn't because that by that stage he'd got he was just kind of, he just wasn't operating on all cylinders, even though he thought he was. I reached out to his friends and he went behind me and told them that I was menopausal. I wasn't thinking right and to not listen to me. So I'm just like, I'm stuck. Uh, My friends, you know, that were into stuff would only know. And I wouldn't, we don't talk about it. We suck it up. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Oh, yeah, he's he's a bit off. You know, my friends would only know how I was doing by whether I was fat or thin. I went through the stage. I lost so much weight once. I felt what it was like. I was literally controlling my diet by eating two protein bars a day. Mm. I could wow. drink um, this much water, know exactly how much I was going to put on on the scale. I was on the scale every day. I got really thin. I lost all my curves. I, it was the only thing I could control in my life. I felt like I was on this train and it was menopause at the same time, this train that I just couldn't get off. Because me going on the menopause train, it was surrounded by his anger. And I remember when um, I actually, um, I um, I had a starburst fracture in one of my knees from missing one of those pop-up seats at one of my con- son's concerts, squatted a bit low, and I was actually quite fit. And my ex said to me, there better be something wrong with you with your blood test, otherwise that's it, you're out. So, you know, you, you, as a woman I was there thinking, I don't think you could live without me because I'm a psychologist to you. You don't seem to realise. And it didn't matter to him, you know, everything I did was wrong, it wasn't good enough. And I and I would always think I'm giving you more than any psychiatrist and psychologist would give you. I'm actually babysitting you through life, holding you in the palm of my hand, letting you pour out more shit on me than you'd ever be able to do on a paid professional. And you have the nerve to tell me that I'm not giving you enough. Uh, I just thought, what was the capitalist? It was. And then, uh, you know, he, yeah, one day I was walking behind him. He was completely lost his chops. He slammed the door in my face. And I just said to him, right, that's it. You're done. And he started being really mean to our son as well. And as mothers, yeah, we're pretty fierce. It's like, we can take a lot, but you start hurting the kid. When it's the kids. And you start ignoring him. So, no, we're out now. And you were talking earlier about um, women being able to go to shelters and stuff. I learned that if you've got a boy over 14, they won't take the boy over 14. So what am I supposed to do? Live in the back of a car, you know, that he'd threatened to take off me because it was in his name. So people don't realise there's a lot of crap that goes on within a marriage when a man to navigate you whether you're happy or not and it wasn't like I cooked for him or cleaned for him or did his own did his own washing when I was here in 2014 he started doing his own washing and he continued to do it from then on I went good 
because there was apparently I folded things wrong anyway. And I thought, God, you should just be grateful that it's clean, mate. Seriously, you know. Uh, you fold stuff in a really stupid way. I fold it in a good way. <laughs> you want to do it your way. So you wash it and you fold it. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but it's not a healthy marriage anymore, is it? You know, once you're on that trajectory, it's, it's just getting worse and worse because you keep receiving it. You keep standing there and tolerating it. But it's that it's that dilemma, isn't it, of the internal condition about what you think your role is and the role that you've created because it doesn't take long for those cycles to be created and then they're incredibly difficult to move out of we we what I did realize that was a huge catalyst was that I had got to the stage where I loved him more than I loved me Mm. and that was really good and that's what we all have to realize who do I love the most we have to love ourselves more than we love anyone to be the best mother or the best girlfriend or the best just for us we have to love ourselves I were I was living a life with no hope there was no light at the end of any proverbial tunnel I would wake up crying I would hear him raging downstairs sometimes I'd like I had my own bedroom so didn't sleep with him for 20 years we had our own rooms he was downstairs I was upstairs uh had my own bathroom if I had slept with him um, I, can, I can understand how women, you know, might knife their husbands. There's no way I, I would want to be anywhere near him. So I had my own little sanctuary. Jack, my son, and I called it the Oasis. So I had my own TV and he'd come up there and there's mummy's vibe, full of mummy's joy and mummy's energy. And then the rest of the house was full of his black energy. But that never seemed to permeate my little world upstairs wow. in my own room. So I had my own space. I feel really sorry and sad for women that don't have their own space. They have nowhere to escape to and they have nowhere to go. I had an oasis to go to in my own house, somewhere that I could actually go get out, which I did on several occasions. And he knew not to come in. And, you know, there, and there was times we had, we had a great sex life um, and I would never have angry sex because I've never been into that. Don't ever do that. It's not good for you uh, because it's just another way of them imprinting on you. Uh, their you know their negativity and their control and all that sort of stuff um but yeah that was the catalyst realizing that I didn't love myself enough so I started listening to um motivational speakers going on my daily walks all sorts of speakers all over the place anything I just random stuff I'll just listen to everything um and I learned that we are the only ones that can change our lives. We have to love ourselves more than anybody else so that we can be the best person. Um, I understood that I had no hope in my life and I needed to change that. And if I was going to get out of the situation that I was in, um, I needed to change who I was. I needed to find opportunity for me. I needed to do stuff for me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so in 2017, um, I, um, I, I put it out to the universe that I wanted to be in front of the camera for a change instead of behind the camera like I normally was. I used to sing in bands when I was younger. Uh, I used to do all this fun stuff and, uh, and, you know, lead singer and backup vocal but mainly lead Um, and I've always done that and that kind of fell by the wayside Um, and I wasn't going out doing stuff and we didn't have a social life or anything like that so I was really insular inside the house. So I put it out to the universe. Two weeks later, be careful what you wish for. Two <laughs> weeks later, and I really did. I really put this 
I think when we manifest stuff or really believe stuff, you have to have self-belief, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to dream big because when you do dream, it's like you unlock this little key that's kept you locked. And the universe always has a lot more in store for you than really you can ever Can you realise? Yeah. So I put it out to the camera, that to the world. That's what I wanted to do. So I went on my merry way. Two weeks later, um, I got uh, contacted by this woman who was um, the director of the Mrs Earth Australia beauty pageant. And she'd seen my photo um, on a makeup artist site or something. And she said to me, oh, we think, I think you'd be a really good um, contestant in the Mrs Earth Australia competition. Well, I nearly fell off the bed laughing. I was 55 at this stage. I hadn't worn dresses. Sorry, 54, nearly 55. I hadn't worn dresses or anything fitted for nearly 30 years because I changed who I was um, and dressed down for the last that the previous 30 years of my life um, because I felt like I walked through life a bit more comfortable that way. Um, yeah. But I realised this moment, um, I checked, I, I really thought it was hilarious and I don't even have high heel shoes, never mind a frock in the cupboard, you know. <laughs> I wasn't one of those girls. I would always feel um, uncomfortable yeah. When I beautiful models, you know, I'd be making them look more beautiful and they'd be gorgeous. And even just women, they just with dresses, they just seemed really confident. And I felt really dowdy and like I didn't fit in and I didn't have anything to say. Yet I can obviously talk and I'm obviously quite strong, but that's who I felt like because I was in this relationship that was really disempowering. Yeah. You know, I was being emotionally disempowered, um, not, not physically disempowered. I did that to myself, but emotionally and mentally disempowered that I was to, I just wasn't enough, you know. And I was kind of allowed to leave the house and do makeup and come back. So two weeks, I got this, got this message and I checked out the, I thought, I'm just, this is just so out of left field, you know. And I'd been listening to motivational <laughs> stuff and I thought, I'm just going to pay attention. Right? I'm not going to just fob it off. Um, and I checked out that they uh, all these pageants raise money raise money for charities, and the charity this one supported uh, was called Souls for Souls, who collect new and new shoes for people to distribute all over the world. And uh, I'm big into secondhand and op shop shopping, you know, and I'm also a wardrobe stylist as well as a hair and makeup artist. So I spent a lot of time sourcing wardrobe in shops for TV commercials and stuff. And I thought, wow, that's so me. And then I sat there and I thought my ex, he used to be an international transport. I thought he can send the shoes out so I can give him something kind of, you know, this is something different. I'm going to, I can change our lives. Um, And I realised I was having my own sliding doors moment that I could say no because I wasn't a dress wearer, you know, and that, that, that whole part of it was actually psychologically intimidating for me in a really big way. Yeah, yeah. I could just like the movie Sliding Doors, I could say yes and see what happened. So I said yes because, like I said, I had no hope in my life. There was nothing happening. We never went anywhere. We never wow. did anything. Life was just without anything. So I said yes and cut a long story short, um, it completely changed my life. I had to learn how to wear dresses and go and talk to different places about the charity. But when we talk about and do things for other people, it makes it really easy to do stuff for ourselves. And I had this sash that said finalist and this little tiara that at the beginning felt really dumb wearing, but it was like my superpower. So I'm wearing a cape, you know, because people would come up to me and go, hi, you're Mrs. Earth. And I go, yeah, let's talk. 
yeah, so yeah. the confidence that um well I already said the confidence but it's like it was like a big self-esteem boost that people would just come to me and I was talking about something else rather than myself and then I started talking about myself because 55 was the oldest one in the competition and I and I realized that I was on this journey so I threw myself into it with gusto as I do and I would manifest um I studied in um uh, the American pageantry system because it's huge over there. I had a voice, yeah. I had a, a coach. Um, I learned how to walk properly rather than like a thunderbird. I got high heel shoes and I stood at the end of my bed for like two weeks just to get my balance. Uh, and, I, and it took me a while to hit the tiles and the wooden floor. I did carpet for quite a while because it's a really long way down. Um, but I practiced how I walked. Um, I um, practiced um, my my ex, he had great delight in buying me dresses because I'd never. I hadn't I didn't do jewellery or handbags or dresses and he'd buy stuff, you know, and he'd find it on the internet, secondhand stuff, and he knew my size and he got me some great clothes, like really good clothes. I was really good at shopping for other people for commercials but not for myself because I didn't have the self-esteem. So dresses would arrive. And I'd put them on and go, oh, I like wow. that. It's good. And that gave him great joy. So there was a period in our marriage that I really did lift us. And it helped me um, with my self-esteem and it helped him. It, it gave us this joy and this newfound togetherness, you know, in the struggles of life that we've been going through. So I learned how to be a speaker. I got amazing training. Um, I, became, I went into the competition. I went down to Melbourne. Um, I was competing against um, women who are much younger than me, who I could have given birth to. Um, I became um, the first Mrs Earth Australia, which is awesome. Um, got my crown and my sash and found myself in Vegas three months later competing for Australia. And I'd, I'd actually chosen, I didn't realise, the third biggest pageant system in the world. And in some countries, wow. pageantry is huge. Every day, though, I would, um, in my head, envisage me winning. So yeah. I'd have a scenario of standing backstage <laughs> and the winner is Mrs Earth Australia, Susan Edia. <laughs> I went through this and I really did go through it and I thought I have nothing to lose I don't care that I'm 55 I was 55 at the time I'm a really big believer in age is just a number I don't look my age I don't act my age I don't do Botox or anything like that I've never felt particularly old and I thought why not who cares and the funny thing was on my journey, I had all these people coming to me, wanted me to wear their dresses, and they all believed in me because I believed in me, you know. Yeah. Um, so it all came to me because I had this self-belief and this confidence. It's like, well, why, why can't I win? Why not? Uh, so I ended up coming third in Vegas um, against 36 women from around the world, some who are a little pissed off at me. Miss, Miss, I think it was Miss Ukraine had a bit of a... We call it a dummy spit in Australia. <laughs> she was there with mummy. She got really pissed off. And I just thought, well, darling, when you're 55, contact me then and let's see how you're doing then, you know. Let's see what you look like then and how you are as a human being. Um, so I had I had great experience. I had the, like, just like in the movies, the the, the headsets when you're backstage and you're the top six and you can't hear the other question and then you go out on stage and they ask you that question. And So you have to be able to, you know, you have to be able to not just wear a dress, wear a frock. Um, you have to conduct yourself well. You have to do well in an interview. You have to know what you're doing um, uh, as a representative of it. And the whole experience completely changed my life, opened up the doors to motivational speaking to me. So I found my second passion. 
And at the same, and I've been to India to speak. And uh, at the same time, I started speaking about sexual assault because uh, it was always, you know, because 2014 happened. And so 2014 happened with the court case. I had this, this uh, the beginning of my healing journey there. Um, when I was there, I had this huge um, shamanic healing inside the walls of Stonehenge. Wow. It was amazing. Um, when I was over there and for the months leading up to the court case, I'm just going to go backwards just a little bit, I really felt like I had the support of all my ancestors. Like I had this body of women and men behind me just pushing me forward. I felt like I was a warrior. Yeah. Um, in a really spiritual sense, and I've and because uh, I'm a first generation Australian, I come from here. Both my parents are English, so I have really strong ties to England. So I'm in Stonehenge, where all my ancestors did walk, uh, being blessed by water from the chalice well, and the tears just poured out of me, buckets and buckets of tears. And uh, I'd already studied about forgiveness and the importance mm. of with healing with forgiveness and when we forgive those that have wronged us we're actually forgiving ourselves and that's the gift we give ourselves forgiveness you know I'm not saying that you have to forgive the person that sexually assaulted you you forgive who you were in that situation at that time yeah um and that gives you such a huge release so bucket loads of tears a massive release my face changed from the beginning of one hour to the next I just looked so calm so much so that my ex and my best mate just like whoa you're still there I can see that something really huge has happened to you my father had only died six months previously I realized I was still referring to him in the present tense rather than the past tense um whole lot of staff. I had a whole lot of baggage by with being raised by a narcissist mother. I mean, there was a lot of crap I was carrying around with me. And we do, we often do. We carry all this stuff. And I like to say we have these old suitcases in our head and we tuck it in our brain, you know, and we close it, we wrap it down, it starts bulging, you know, it starts bulging out and all of a sudden, especially around midlife, it just goes and it just... It just all comes out and we have to deal with it, uh, you know. So it was like this huge moment of me forgiving everybody and everything uh, in this massive ceremony inside these very spiritual walls and I left all the army of spirits behind. So I felt so much less like I felt like, and I, I know this might sound weird to some people, but this is just what I felt like. It was it was a very interesting stage of my life to be big part of one of the biggest court cases in the world um and it's a big deal you know the press found me the day after my court case I was being hounded by the press every day there was pressure you know to come forward it's like I'm I'm not going to tell you anything it's not about me it's about the women that were little girls when they were assaulted you know so in Stonehenge all this huge massive emotional release happens and then I, I got my girl on in 2017 and got rid of the one thing that had actually held me back from a lot of jobs that I could have done as a makeup artist because all I could wear was shorts and runners, you know, and if I could have put a frock on, I would have done a lot more um, speaking on stage before then, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't leave the house. Uh, so I pushed myself and um, through these things and this baggage that I was carrying with me, 
So when 2019 came, as we started with the conversation, I was ready because I'd gone through all this healing of myself. Yeah. So I was ready and I was strong and my self-esteem and my self-confidence were both at equal high levels. Um, I like to say when I did the pageantry stuff, weirdly enough, I found my true authentic self. I got really comfortable with who I am. I started loving me. Um, I started seeing me um, in a way that I'd never seen myself before. Um, I'd, I've never thought I was beautiful or anything like that. Um, and people would tell me, oh, you're beautiful on the outside and beautiful on the inside. And um, I started seeing who I was, like really, and really appreciating who I was and, and really having gratitude for um, all of me, what I look like and my personality and everything, and just being ever so grateful that I'd been blessed with uh, mm. a really strong woman that could um, deal with stuff and get through stuff. And, and that's when I started talking about sexual assault because I really wanted to help other women and really help them have their voice and really help them heal because I didn't want women to get to 55. And um, carry that with them. Have that weight with them. All yeah. that time, you know, um, and you know, be in a relationship that they were unhappy with because they were programmed by it, you know. Um, and that's why it's so important that we're that we're talking now and that we're talking together. And I truly believe that the universe brings people to us to help us on our journey, to help us share our journey, to even even if it's just you and I being supportive of each other. And all you guys, you know, we're, we're sharing all this with you to help you on your journey as well. It's This is what life is all about. And this is what I've realised now as a 61-year-old. It's um, it's about giving and giving of yourself so that you can, and, in a, and authentic is a really good buzzword around. And I'm so <laughs> God-smackingly honest, you know, um I um I'm too I can't be bothered I, I've always been uh like to, I can't be bothered to lie I'm just I'm going to be really straightforward with people because I think 61 now um I'm just going to tell you I'm going to tell you about my journey I'm going to help you on yours I'm going to tell you where it's at because there's no reason to not you know and that's how we help people heal and you've also, because you felt the weight and the experience of living in the circumstances that you did, then you've had that the catalyst and the healing experience and clearly ready because one of the things is, is that people can carry that stuff with them for years. And sometimes the brain's job and the body's job, the psychology is to hold on to it until they're in a safe enough place to they're at a stage of their journey when they can share that. And sometimes that is limited by somebody's belief about no one will take me serious or I can't share that or what will happen or or I've seen a lot as well and this has happened when I've been teaching yoga and meditation as well as when I've worked as a therapist is the fear of what happens when you start to feel some of those really awful deep feelings of that spiral and depth that you can go to is a very scary place for people and sometimes that's what can stop them but the catalyst in the story that you share, it paves the way for people to realise, doesn't it, that, you know, we might have experienced all those things, but it doesn't have to define who we are and where we go at the next phase of our life. And that's that was what was so beautiful about seeing you, you know, when on the stage talking through when we get to midlife. What is it we believe that's going to be about? What are the stories we have that we tell ourselves about how life either ends or begins? And where, who are we in relationship to everybody else around us? What is our role? And the idea of self-love and loving ourselves, 
that's a fairly new concept and authenticity was a word I only heard in the echelons of the psychotherapy world you know that the client needs to go through these phases of coming out of the condition conditioning towards self-actualization towards this sense of being authentic but these are ideas and concepts that unless you're on the journey and get to that phase, it's very difficult to articulate to somebody else when they're in a very different space. And sometimes we can only shine the light towards somebody's next step and assist them in that process. And it's up to them, as you say, to take the mantle, to take the message and say, what does this mean for me? And what can I reflect on and what can I do next? Rather than getting overwhelmed, because you clearly have the buoyancy to be able to open the sliding doors, stand on the stage and have the whole world looking in and go, here I am. But the work that you put behind the scenes to get to that phase can't be underestimated. Even if we jokingly say, you know, I couldn't wear a pair of heels or a dress. And I totally get that because a lot of women had to dress more like tomboys because we didn't want to draw the attention to ourselves. It was negative attention. We didn't want to have that experience. So there's so many layers to what sometimes looks like a very simple activity of why do you wear flats in comparison to heels? Why do you not wear a dress? You know, it, there's the work that goes on behind that is phenomenal. And, and again, I'm emphasizing it because I don't think people realize the massiveness of the journey that you've taken. And if we moved all the court case and everything that led up to that moment, the moment was also about realizing who you were in the marriage and what you'd uh, been exposed to the toxic environment, the fight flies, uh, fight, gosh, the words have left me, in terms of the stress response to stressful conditions and how you have to be tapping. There's got to be, like you say, something that you're tapping into or someone just comes into your life like the women that came to the talk that you did, that will hear one thing that provides that key to open the door to them starting to believe it's possible to experience life in a completely different way. Because a whole range of tools you're talking about in that process, aren't there? You know, it's a whole range of tools. But you have to be brave. Yeah. And the thing is, is, is you're not being brave with someone else. You just got to be brave with yourself. You've got to think back on stuff and you've got to deal with stuff, but it's just your life. Yeah. So you've yeah. already lived it, you know. Sometimes, you know, I did a meditation once um, and um, you had to take yourself back to a moment in time and I took myself back to my 12-year-old self who was being sexually assaulted, which changed my life. Um, and you take yourself back as the adult woman that you are mm. all the things that you learn and you tell your 12-year-old self or whoever, you're going to get through this. You are a warrior. You are really, yeah. you're going you're gonna to achieve things that you've never even dreaming of now. You will be okay. And when you, and you give your, your younger self a big hug, uh, and doing something like that, um, it's very powerful. There will very be powerful. Years, but if you yeah. read yourself like that as your adult self, rather than I'm just going to think about when I was assaulted, you actually go there and you both meet each other, and you and and you st- and this is the beginning of you loving yourself and that little person inside you who was not mentally ready or emotionally ready for any of the crap that they went through. For any of that, yeah. Anything you just let her know you are yeah. going to be. Kick-ass woman when you grow up. Yeah. 
and this sort of experience, you're going to get through it and you're going to, you know, you just you be positive with your young self. And that's what I like to be able to teach other women to do these techniques. And obviously, you know, lots of techniques like this to be able to help people on their journey in a kind way. But it's a powerful way, you know. Um, I taught myself stuff when I was younger just to get through uh, my childhood um, yeah. and in the book I call them um, primal therapies so I used to be um, a competitive swimmer so I'd swim um, train every day um, I used to scream under the water wow now, it told me to scream under the water I never read it anywhere there was no book there was no it was a gut yeah, yeah. Was like in my body Right, and I would scream blue murder under the water. I'd get all the emotions because no one can hear you underwater when you scream. Yeah. Um, I would get all the emotions out. So by the time I'd finished my session, I was completely spent. I was empty emotionally of any of the negativity, anger, whatever that I was carrying because of the relationship I had with my mother. I, I left space for myself to be filled with my own joy because I've always been a naturally joyous person. So all of a sudden there was space for me in me again, you know, uh, and um, and then I was physically exhausted as well. But I, I learnt, I, I've kind of been on this journey of discovering myself um, because of being raised by a mother with no empathy and figuring out who I was in the grand scheme of things. And there actually wasn't anything wrong with me. There's something seriously wrong with her, yeah. but there was nothing wrong with me, you know. And I had a woman when I was 21 after my disastrous 21st birthday that my parents put on for me. Um, and I'd never even spoken to her before. And she said to me, took me up to her place for a cup of tea. And she told me that those very words, she said, there is nothing wrong with you, but there is something seriously wrong with both of your parents. And I want you to know this from the age of 21 it was like I sat there and went oh thank god wow yeah that's yeah. all because up until that point you thought it was you yeah. ways to believe that there was something missing in me there was something seriously wrong with me because it didn't matter what I achieved or what I you know and I achieved some really big things as a kid but it was never good enough for the narcissist because nothing ever is you know and again narcissist is a term with with this, yeah. this no didn't know what that was when I was growing up. Yeah. My mother had a split personality. Yeah. And the nice yeah. one was there. She was nice. And when the horrible one was, was there, she used to hit me, you know, and hate me and just hated on me, you know. Um, uh, but having that's why it's so important as older women that we that we take the step forward when we see things and um and behaviors in younger people that we know is affecting them or is wrong we must step up and use our life experience to give yeah. you advice because that those those couple of sentences changed my life oh my goodness I can imagine that I mean I worked in a secondary school once for five years I worked as a school counselor and one of the key things was you know, sometimes they needed to realise it was the parents that had a lot of issues. Some of the parents were taking drugs, had mental health issues, but proportion of what was going on, in fact, none of it, because they're young, you know, they, they're at the, the beck and call of uh, the parents are meant to take that responsibility. And so for them to know it's not them, they are experiencing distress and fear and angst and all of these things because of the environment they're in. And 
that is underestimated and you know like we spoke on the phone those kids are expected to go from that environment of whatever is taking place to school to have the focus and be able to study without everything going on in their heads and that one statement that somebody says stops you carrying that belief about yourself for the rest of your life and that in itself can be what you know fuels the you know the aspects of your personality were probably there anyway but it fuels that for you to be able to forge forward to a time in history that you couldn't have done much different because of the history and the environment and the attitudes of everybody you'd have really been up against it and even the women I've come into contact with in the last two years proportion of those are really up against it and the ones that had previous careers that then found themselves in situations with you know toxic relationships were able to then find their feet at some point with that help but everybody needs assistance from time to time and whether that is financial emotional spiritual and I also believe this is a big part of our own spiritual journey of that waking up to who we really are which is a phrase that's banded about a lot in the spiritual circles but it's really meaningful and it is about that you know do we carry on living these lives according to how society's decided that it should be structured and the way that we should all perform these roles when those roles and ideas about who we are they could be so far from the truth of what what we really are and yet trying to bridge the gap or discover that is that process of self-discovery isn't it it's finding out what lights you up what brings you joy what makes you happy makes you smile and then discerning and noticing like your friend did if I go around to somebody's house and they energy is so heavy can you tolerate that is that an experience that you want to put yourself in and there comes a sometimes we have those choices like in your circumstances you had to create your own oasis which again is a tool you created without even realizing it but that came from that deep source in yourself about how you survive and a lot of this is how do we survive how do we get through circumstances which you've done amazing I mean my hat goes off to you because you've done amazingly well to have got through all that and then become such a public eye you know for that period of time that you can now turn your life uh, where you're 99.9% of the time or 90% you know because we'll still get moments won't we where you can hit the skids feel rock bottom don't feel so good but the rest of the time you can feel in a much better space. Is that how it is for you more now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I feel, again, because I'm in England now, I came for three weeks and I decided to stay for six months. And again, I I feel the the freedom here um, and uh, the freedom of being away from responsibility. My son is living in our house. He's got all my furniture. He's got his girlfriend and he's got flatmates and that's all good. And, And our dog and... Um, and I miss him and I miss the dog, but um, it's the longest we've ever been apart for his entire life. Mm-hmm. And he's 21 now. I need to let my boy grow into a man and he he's not going to do it with me living in the same house, you know, even though I was just in the bedroom, but he needs to be more responsible for things. And it's important. Sometimes we have to make the hard choices, you know, mm-hmm to uh or the two well no not the hard choices we have to make choices for ourselves I made the choice for ourselves I truly believe that this is where I'm supposed to be right now 
you know, I'm supposed to be in England. I'm supposed to be the warrior woman that I am, that you've beautifully and thank you so much referred to me about that because that gives me, um, it fills my heart. Um, and it's one of those moments as you're like, yeah, I am doing the right thing. And I feel more connected here than I do in Australia with my Rolf mm-hmm. Harris story. Um, and I've met some amazing people here and I'm going to continue to mm-hmm. do that. But I feel like I, I really do feel like I can do um the most good here this is where I'm going to be of the most service we hear people talking about being service being of service to the world and I think sometimes this is what I'm this is what it's like you know sometimes it sounds a bit wanky depending on who says it you know um but by me talking about life the universe and everything and talking about my future I mean my past in a really frank and open way I know that many women and men have related to my story and really, yeah. really enjoyed my honesty and my authenticity and have reached out to me um, so that I can help them on their life path, which is great, you know, and, and it's it's about utilising your life path and being able to pass on these tips and tricks. The amount of people I've got onto scream therapy, mm. uh, that's helped them so much. But, you know, you don't have to be in a pool. You can be in a car with the music up, you know, or you can go and stand in an empty field so no one can hear you. Um, there's the, those little, just those little moments with people, total strangers, are really helpful. I think you have to be prepared to give of yourself. Mm. Uh, and that's really what life is all about, I reckon. Most definitely. And you're in that place of realising who you are in your own authentic self and sometimes you can brush past somebody and have a conversation for like two minutes and it's as meaningful as somebody signing up to therapy or coaching or whatever for a year and I truly believe that because in that moment in time somebody else gives themselves the permission to feel or see or hear experience and then reevaluate where they are no matter whether they take action or not because a lot of the women I worked with part of Part of it is about giving them permission to say, well, you're still in that circumstance and you're not ready to change that yet. And that's OK. Or you're in that circumstance as you're starting to change it. So how can we help you? So it's not up to me to judge where someone is on their journey and how they go about it. But to realise that at those different spaces, there are different tools like the one you created with your oasis as kids did when we were working with them, they create imaginary worlds, they read books that are full of fantasy, that are part of helping you um, get through and navigate life until you're able to sit with the full totality of the whole experience of everything that you've had with the new information. Because had it been sooner, we might not have had the language to describe what the experiences were. We might not have understood what life was really like for women in the early 1900s before we could vote, before when we got, got you know, we could work, but then we had to leave our jobs. Being a woman with what we know now, being put back in yeah. the then oh, my God, they, oh, we You'd would go be crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I think in some ways this is, I think in some ways this is what's happened to women over the years where sometimes you can see more than, then anyone around you is ready for it. And then you cascade it as crazy because nobody else can see that. And just going back to that point you made about when this story broke about Rolf Harrison, people were shocked because the, the ideal and the reality was so far apart. It creates this 
sort of cognitive dissonance that people can't cope with and evokes all of these feelings. And then you get, as Freud would talk, you know, we'd project that into society. We have to find somebody to blame because we can't cope with the 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 psyche and the crumbling notion of who we think the world is and what's going on and that's why sometimes we've got to be mindful about the level of information that we share with people because there's only so much sometimes they can comprehend or take on board or can do for some like you it's you get the call you know you're going to do this competition right I'm going to go for it and for other people it's subtle changes along the way but I think the where you've come from and who you are in the conversations we've had you're absolutely amazing and I love coming into contact with women that are doing things like what you are uh, that I know every every one of those moments or encounters whether you're in a coffee shop or talking on the um, tv screen or you're part of I know there's a documentary that's coming out or is out at the moment about the whole um, that I'm featured in on ITVX called um, Rolf Harris Hiding in Plain Sight. Hiding in Plain Sight. Interesting title, isn't it? How much stuff is hiding in plain sight? So just in terms of moving forward uh, and your own life and, you know, have, have you got a direction or is it a case of the universe will throw something in every few weeks and you'll see which way it takes you? It's been like that in the last four weeks, that's for sure. I've just had so much press. I've just kind of been inundated, so which is lovely. Um, now, I've got a really, um, um, I want to speak to corporate, to businesses. Yeah. I put together a really good workbook um, about communication. A lot of the things in my book, I, I'll show everybody my book. Here we go. It's probably back to France. 60 new 40. Yeah. yeah for aging um but a lot of (laughs) it's about um it's about communication and manifestation um and that we need to upgrade in our communication when we get to a certain stage in life and and the in in business and in businesses half the problem about unwanted sexual advances or unwanted talking is communication Mm. and men and women need to learn to communicate more effectively uh, so I've put together a workbook um, and I want to go and talk to businesses uh, about that using, you know, me, the person who stood up for the Rolf Harris court case and what it was like when I was younger back in the day. And that we that was like in the 80s. We can't have that sort of behaviour now. This is 2023. We have to, you know, get with the yeah. program and get rid yeah. of it. But it's all about how we communicate and body language and reading the room and you know, not being ignorant and having women actually stand up for themselves, you know. My son's girlfriend, um, so her mum is um, only, I think, 45, so not my age, Um, and she was working. She's a lovely girl, quiet. She was working, well, she does work evenings at a market store, right, and this man, an older man, has been coming up and bothering her. And I spoke to her literally the week before I left the country and uh, like really bothering her, bothering her so much that it's been disturbing her. She's been losing sleep and she decided that she was going to give up that night shift and give up the work that she really loves, that she's really good at. And her mum, who is a different generation, is saying to her, is not giving her the sort of advice that I give her, you know. She's like, well, you know, if you think that's okay, and I'm like, Let's just hold the farm here, shall we? You're living with me now, darling, so let's have a chat. I want to teach you about empowerment. You know, so I taught her what to do, which is 
make sure everybody around you knows that this man has been harassing you. When he walks into your stand and you say, no, don't touch my things, he must actually listen to you. Raise your voice. Be vocal. Say F off. He will go away. Make sure everybody around you knows. There's always police that walk up and down or some sort of security. Go and tell them. Don't let this man decide that he's going to help you back to your car in the middle of the night, whether you want him to or not. Let this man disempower you to give away a job that you love. That you love doing. You're not communicating your needs effectively. And then I told her, I said, darling, uh, you have to know what he's doing is breaking the law. The laws have changed since my day and your mother's day. Right, you stand up for yourself. If he touches you in any way, shape, or form, it's assault. And she's like, "Oh, starting to stand up taller." Really? Realize exactly. You tell the police; they'll hang around your stand, sweetheart. You know, you're a pretty girl. You're 20 years old, and they're not going to let anybody. This they, they love this stuff. You know, they're going to look out for you. The other standholders are going to look out for you. They're going to look out for this man. Don't change your life and your trajectory because some random old bloke is living on the paradigms of an outdated generational mindset who thinks that he can come and invade your space and your personhood just because he wants to. That one conversation with her changed her life. She's, She's, you know, she's not quit a job. She's feeling very empowered. She uses her big voice, not her little voice. She stands confident in her I even told her how to stand I said Wonder Woman stands darling legs but hands on him <laughs> you know, no mate get out <laughs> use big voice use your power stance pretend you're Wonder Woman do whatever you need to do but exactly stand there yeah. with your with your and sink into yourself and put out the wrong body language and the wrong voice this is how we empower our men and our women we tell them that it's okay to communicate that they're not happy with what's going on. It's okay to use their big voice. It's okay to use their Wonder Woman stance or Wonder or Superman, whatever, you know, but it's okay to do that, to teach them to be empowered in their own personhood, you know, and yeah. not push them around because when you do that, people, people like that, men like that, they'll just go away. You know, and if they don't go away, the other standholders who are older people will. Uh, embarrass them away you know and the cops will ask them to leave and they won't come back but in the workforce we have to make sure that when we have older men for instance of a different generation who may be in positions of power which is often the case we must learn not to touch their dignity when saying things to them which means you don't yell and you don't swear right you hold your ground you put your wonder woman stance on you have your shoulders back you go I've just got to let you know that's really inappropriate that you talk to me like that it makes me feel really uncomfortable I realize you don't mean to do that but this is what's happening you do it in an even tone you do it with a nice voice you communicate in um, a respectful but assertive way without going get your effing hands off me you dirty old bugger Mm. It's his dignity that gets his back up that loses you your job yeah 
And I'm not saying to behave the way we used to, which is, okay, you can touch me. Oh, God, I can't be touched. I'm just going to deal with it. No. Yeah. yeah. Don't do that. Don't put your hand on my shoulder. It makes me feel very uncomfortable. Uh, I'm giving you, you know, clear signals now with verbal, with body language. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to look you in the eye. I'm not going to be in a in an uh, unadvantage disadvantaged power position of just staying in my chair and looking around. Mm. Going, I'm going to push my chair back. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to approach you one on one like this in a polite, respectful tone and go, no. That's what that's how change happens. Okay, exactly. Yeah. So that's what I want to teach businesses. And that's amazing because it's that element of the person within the environment, the personal empowerment, and also the cultural uh, ideas about what's okay and not okay, and how we need to do it from a lead, the two pronged approach, the leadership uh, leadership perspective, and position and policy and practice, but also empowering people to realise, just as you've done with her, that no, you don't need to leave your job. It's 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 a different way that you can manage that. And it's absolutely fascinating. You know, it's 2023 and we've still got young women who think or are advised by their parents or grandparents that you just walk away and you go quiet and sublimate. And yeah. that now in that circumstance, she can do that. And, in, and I know in uh, other corporate companies that are a bit future paced in their thinking have enabled that change to occur and there are other spaces where that doesn't but it does take that conversation and that real reality of how do we respect each other how do we treat each other we're not objects we're not sexualized creatures we're here to do a job we're here to work together as a team let's treat everybody with the same level of respect and value and emanate that and show that in the in our leadership and not use some to- I've worked in environments where managers also use toxic behaviours to, you know, baby uh, fire the staff and um, create all sorts of scenarios that are unnecessary. So much needed and wish you total, total good luck. And, uh, you know, that that's all going to unfold in beautiful ways, which I have every trust that it will, because from the stories that you've shared with me and the mindset that you bring into this, those doors will open. But I think the universe will bring it in ways that you're meant to spread that magic even further into people's lives. So I appreciate so much that you've spent this time with me today, Susie, and shared your depth, wisdom, fortitude, resilience, um, joy, beautiful way of looking at the world, and also being that raw, honest truth that is not easy to do, and I really admire that. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mel. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been lovely having a chat with you. Yeah, it really has. Thank you.